What a wonderful evening of worship already tonight. Amen. My heart's already been stirred. I invite you tonight to open your Bible, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you find it, turn it on, or open it, please, and find the 27th chapter of Matthew. Tonight, we're thinking about miracles that take place around the cross, the miracle of Christ's death and what it means for all of us. So we're in the 27th chapter of Matthew, and we're going to begin in just a moment in verse 45. Just a little background that you know. This is Good Friday, right? We're thinking about Passover. We're thinking about how Jesus met with his disciples and he had a Passover meal with them in that upper room. They went to Gethsemane, and in Gethsemane, he's betrayed and arrested. But before that happens, he's pouring out his prayer to God, and he's wrestling with the mission that God has given him and the cup that he must drink. He's betrayed by a kiss, by Judas, taken into custody, by the religious leaders, the temple guard, and the authorities. He's taken before an inquest and questioning by the high priests and the Sanhedrin. At morning, he's shuffled off, and they want to kill him, but they have no authority, so they send him to, to Pilate. And Pilate examines him and finds no guilt in him and sends him to Herod. And Herod tries to make sport with him but finds no reason to kill him and sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate examines him and finds no reason to kill him. But for political expediency and because the Jewish leadership cried out in the people to release Barabbas and to crucify him. And you're no friend of Caesar's if you release him. We have no king but Caesar. What blasphemy. And they commit him to death. He's humiliated. He's stripped. He's beaten. Beaten with rods. Scourged with whips. Mocked. Jeered. Spit upon. They crown him with a woven crown of thorns piercing his brow, weakened, exhausted. They lead him outside of the city gate to a place called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And the Roman soldiers throw the cross on the ground wooden beam and on that wooden cross they pierce his hands and feet and nail him they hang him on a cross they lift him up between heaven and earth and there the prince of glory is dying a heinous death like a criminal In the midst of that, it says in verse 45 of chapter 27, 
Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, taking a sponge he filled with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The first miracle around the cross tonight is the miracle of darkness at midday. It's the sixth hour, we're told by Matthew, in Roman time, that means it's 12 noon. And darkness comes over the land until the ninth hour at 3 p.m. Darkness, it says, all over the land. Surely there was darkness all over the Middle East. Perhaps, I think most likely, all over creation. It was not a solar eclipse. Passover is a full moon. There is no way you could have a solar eclipse at Passover. So what... What is this? And what does it mean? There's darkness on the earth. I think it's a symbol of the judgment of God. In Exodus chapter number 10, Ken, are you going to read the scripture to me again also? I mean, you can finish the sermon if you need to, Ken. Sit down. You remember the children, when the children of Israel, the plagues that God sent on Egypt. One of them was a plague of darkness. It's God's judgment. In Amos chapter 8, it talks about the coming day of the Lord and the wrath of God. Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 the apocalyptic, the return of Jesus Christ. And we think about the imminent sign of his return, and one of those will be darkness. But that's not what we're talking about here. The Bible says those consigned to hell are consigned to a place of outer darkness, separate where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe at least what God is saying on this day, this is no ordinary day. The creator and the light of the world is dying for man's sin. 
the dark sorrow in the heart of God about the sinfulness of men. We have, we cannot fathom in our sinful condition what our sin, how it is viewed by a holy God. One scholar said, God watched his son on the cross and he wrote in the darkened sky and torn mountains his judgment on our wickedness and his love for Christ. And God proved himself then and there the Lord of life and death. Christ experienced his dereliction, his abandonment on the cross. I think the darkness represents that. You feel it. And the words of Jesus that come out are Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is the Hebrew, the Aramaic was Eloi, Eloi. Why? How could it be that the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? The one who said, I and the Father are one. The one who said, I don't do anything on my own initiative, but I do what the Father tells me. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're, we're, we're together. And yet in that moment, he feels abandoned. And in a real sense, he was. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Thine eyes are too pure to look on evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. In the book of Isaiah... In chapter number 53, listen to the prophet. Listen closely. Isaiah 53. In verse number 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. We just sang that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part. Peter says the just one died for unjust ones, that he might bring us to God. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus died for your sin and my sin, every one of them, all of our sins and all of the sins of all who will trust in him were paid for in full on the cross. And he bore 
the wrath of God. And he suffered and he died alone. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. The hymn at the cross has this line, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, and it was there by faith I received my sight. And now, and now, I am happy all the day. Jesus died for us. Mystery of mysteries, he died in our place. How could it be that darkness and Jesus experienced the darkness like no man's ever experienced? And that the light of the world would seemingly be extinguished. Whenever the lights go out, it's pretty disconcerting, isn't it? Some of you are looking at, I can see who's looking at cell phones now. <laughs> we know Ken is. Against the backdrop of darkness, a light is much more powerful. Amen? Amen. And the light of Jesus Christ shines in a dark world because it's in that darkness that we see the love of God most powerfully. As you look at the illumination of the cross, it stands out as a sign and symbol that God loves you with an everlasting love. And God has demonstrated his own love for you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You can turn the lights on, please. The second miracle is the miracle of a torn veil. Notice what it says. And it says, And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Jesus gives up the ghost. He dies. And he cries from the cross, 
a loud cry. And John chapter 19 tells us what that cry was. It is finished. He had earlier said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, he didn't say, God, why did you forsake me? He said, my God. There's even faith there as he quotes Psalm 22. You are my God. And God was fulfilling his purpose in Christ And Christ was drinking the full cup of God's wrath. And when it's finished, Jesus says, it's finished. He says, Father, unto your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. They didn't take his life. He laid down his life. Now, what is this tearing of the veil in the temple? Quickly. Number one, first thing you need to know, it's certainly clear. It was not an act of man. It was an act of God. It was torn from the top to the bottom. In the temple complex, there was a barrier between the holy of holies and the priest. There was also a barrier between the court of men and the priests. I think that this one that's torn is with holy of holies. And Jesus Christ died and satisfied a holy God. And Jesus went into the very presence of the holiest of holies. Not the holy of holies in the temple, but in a tabernacle eternal in the heavens. And he entered into the very presence of God himself. And with a sacrifice, not of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood. And all of our sin was paid for in full. And there's been full and complete atonement for all of our sin. And the tearing of the the veil in the temple means that there is access to holy God, and that access is through Jesus Christ, and you no longer have to go to a priest, but you have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. And you have direct access into the very presence of God. And God was telling everyone that there's no longer any sacrifices needed. It's been paid in full. And you no longer need men to be priests. You are all a kingdom of priests with access to God. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Amen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's tempted in all things, yet without sin, Draw this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our high priest. In chapter number 10, verse 19 of Hebrews, it simply says this, 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter where the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. A new and living way he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Amen. That's what we have. We've been made a kingdom of priests with access to God. Behind the veil was an Ark of the Covenant. And there, in that little room behind the veil, was the Ark of the Covenant. No one ever saw it except a high priest once a year. Inside that ark, on top of that ark was a lid, and that lid was the mercy seat. There were cherubim with their wings extended, facing each other on the mercy seat. And inside that box was the law, the Ten Commandments, written in stone by the hand of God. And what he's saying is full atonement's been made and the law has been satisfied. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Amen. Amen. Second thing, there is a container of manna. Jesus is the bread of life. And not only that, there's the rod, the budding rod of Aaron. And now we don't need a priesthood because Jesus is our priest forever. And God ripped it open and said, this is a new day. Amen. Amen. Now listen, the bread of life, we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What does that mean? We're to know him personally. Have a living relationship with the living Lord. Amen. Father in heaven. Thank you for the truths of your word. They're powerful and true. Have your way in our hearts this night. May we surrender fully. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name. Again, look in your Bibles to Matthew 27, and we'll continue to look at Jesus' miraculous death, reading verses 51 through 54. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Jesus was born humbly and quietly without making a huge scene, but that is not how he died. 
It was a momentous event. And reality reflected that. The earth shook. The sun was blotted out. The temple veil was rent in half. And saints of God raised from the dead. God was saying something here. Demonstrating the power and significance of Jesus' death. This death was spiritually cataclysmic. A sudden and decisive upheaval in which death and the devil and sin were shaken to their core and displaced and defeated. So significant, so weighty was this event that the earth too shook and rocks were split. This spiritual cataclysm was reflected by a smaller natural one. Normal deaths don't shake the earth and split rocks, but Jesus's did. Because he is the ruler of rocks and the maker of the earth. The Bible shows us that the earth often shakes and trembles when God's glory descends. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is derived from the word that means heavy or weighty. Kabod. This is why the, the Apostle Paul talks about the weight of glory. God's glory biblically includes his splendor and his beauty, but it also is speaking of his weightiness, his gravity, how heavy, how substantial he is. He is more solid and significant than Mount Sinai. So when he descended upon it, what happened? It shook. It quaked. And on Good Friday, the depths of our unshakable Christ descended into the shallows of sin and death, and they shook. The incomprehensible weight of his glory displaced the puny enemy and his minions and his glory fully deployed in the conquering of death and the devil and sin was of such immensity that it shook the earth around him. But this wasn't just an accidental byproduct. Even in his dying, Jesus is intentional. God himself, through these miracles, is showing us what he is doing at the cross. Jesus is showing us that he is the firm and fixed reality and even the earth is flimsy and fragile compared to him. That, and that he is inaugurating a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about and when he says, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I love his application for us that he draws from our incredible hope of our unshakable kingdom to come. He says what? Let us be grateful and let us worship with awe and reverence. May we have this kind of humble wonder in the hope Christ offers us. And 
to that hope I want to look next because again, if you look at our text in Matthew, and you may not see this in your translation, but the author here intentionally uses the same word for what happened to the rocks and what happened to the veil. He uses the same Greek word, schizo, meaning split. Both the veil and the rocks were split. Matthew is drawing our attention to something. Pastor Tim did a great job of pointing to how the, the veil, the splitting of the veil was the making of the way into God's presence. And the rocks splitting are also opening a door that was previously closed. As C.S. Lewis says, Christ forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. The split curtain speaks to the renewal of our souls. The split stones speak to the renewal of our bodies. Because as a part of this earthquake, some very specific stones were stirred. Those covering tombs. Audrey, my wife, remembers when she first started reading the Bible really for herself in high school. And she noticed a, a surprising and incredible detail. And the way she put it, she said that when Jesus died, a bunch of people were busting out of their graves. And so she mentioned this to some other Christ, older Christians in her life one day, and they didn't believe her that it was in there. And she was like, how has nobody talked about this before? Well, we're talking about it now. Because it is in there. And it is incredible. And just like all of Jesus' other miracles, it points to something even more incredible. But I do have some thoughts in answer to her question of why it's not talked about more. And I think it's probably for the same reason that Christmas is so much more popular than Easter. Everybody can get on board with a sweet little baby in a manger. It's not as easy to get on board with a dead man coming back to life. It's not as palatable. It's much more intense and demands that you actually pay attention to what is going on. You can't really dismiss it as a nice, cozy story unless you just really aren't paying attention. And that's the point. That's the one thing Jesus never is. He's never just kind of nice. If you really see what he says and what he does, the one thing that his teachings and his actions do not allow are moderate appreciation. John Stott once wrote in his book, uh, Basic Christianity, about people whose religion he called was like a, a great soft cushion. It protects them from the unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience, like a cushion. And he says, no wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. He goes on to say the message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Amen. Stott is right. Jesus is not a cushion. He is the dying, rising Son of God. He challenges our ways of thinking and takes us out of our comfort zones, but he does it in the most glorious way possible. Sure, it's not easy or breezy or comfortable to talk about dead people coming back to life, but you know what's worse? Dead people staying dead. And Jesus died for the hope that that doesn't have to be the case. The text we're looking at tonight tells us that the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Jesus is making it clear that as, as he dies, his death is the death of death. Amen. 
His death has the power to bring life out of death. We usually think of Sunday as the day of resurrection. And we think of Jesus' resurrection as the basis for our own. And that's all true, gloriously true, but it's not the whole glorious truth. Here we see Jesus' death opening tombs and giving life to bodies. Not all saints, but some of them. This was a preview of what's to come, a foretaste. Like God, God here, I think, is so eager to show us what he is up to in this glorious event. Because Jesus' death is the source of our hope of resurrection. Because it was his death that achieved what was necessary for us to be completely renewed. What was that? What was necessary? Well, Romans 8 talks about it in such a wonderful way. It says that the creation was subjected by God to futility and hope that one day it would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And he goes on to say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, and groaning in childbirth. And not only the creation, but we too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Wait eagerly for what, does he say? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, it says. This is our hope. The redemption of our bodies. I know some of us have become content with the idea of being disembodied spirits floating on clouds, but for those of us like me who love hugs and food, we are glad to know the truth. That Christ has saved us for the hope of the redemption of our bodies and adoption as sons. Do you notice this text ties the redemption of our bodies integrally to our adoption as sons? And how does such glorious benefits come to us? Well, Paul explains a little later in that same chapter at Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He gives us all things with him. With the giving of his son, he gives us everything else. He's talking about Christ's death when he says he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. It was the son of God's death that allows us to be sons of God. And it is the adoption as sons that means we will inherit the redemption of our bodies. In these miracles around the cross, God is commenting on what is going on here. He's showing us vividly and powerfully what he is doing here. And he's pointing to the victory over death in the death of Christ. He can't even wait until Easter to show us he's so excited about it. This death has made something glorious possible. God could have raised dead bodies to life all day, easily. You know that, right? That's easy for God. He made the bodies to begin with. But what he could not do, apart from the death of Christ, was raise fully redeemed humans to glorified everlasting sonship with him. He couldn't. Because his own justice and holiness demanded that our sin be dealt with. As Colossians 2 put it, You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, now pause there. He's saying our trespasses were keeping us dead and they had to be forgiven, the text says. So we think, okay, great, just forgive us, God, easy. Well, if you think 
Forgiveness is easy. You've probably never done it. But more than that, we know that a judge cannot be just and just let people off. God's justice demands that trespasses be accounted for. So how are they forgiven? Well, the text continues. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what was nailed to the cross? According to this text, it was the record of debt, our record of debt with its legal demands of our transgressions, but historically, physically, what was nailed to the cross? The body of Jesus, yeah. Jesus took into himself all of the sin and evil and wreckage and rebellion that we have wreaked. And he bore all the consequences of it fully and finally. And therefore you, whose soul is dead in your trespasses, God can make alive together with Christ. And you whose body is dying, God can raise to life together with Christ because his death has removed the obstacles to this. Jesus is not content to see his good creation degrade into destruction. He has descended into humanity, descended into the earth to rise again, bringing us up with him. He will renew your body. He will renew your soul. He will renew this world. And as that Romans 8 passage that we looked at a minute ago says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The very earth shakes in anticipation of the day that we all become unshakable. Jesus' death was like a thunderbolt of light and power into this valley of death through which we walk. He is our hope of life. He is the weightiest, most substantial thing in existence. His enemies of death and sin and Satan are crushed beneath the weight of his glory. And his friends whom he died to rescue are saved by that same glory. He is firm and sure and unshakable. All else is unstable sinking ground. Hope in him. Trust in him today and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for not sparing your own son that you may with him freely give us all things, for freely committing to us in generous love at great cost to have us as your own children. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts to see our need and see the glory of Christ. And I pray that you do that work now even more in hearts in this room. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your voluntary death for us, for bearing our penalty that we might be forgiven, for loving us boldly and powerfully and giving us hope. I pray we live in the joy of that hope. And we pray in your name. Amen.